Chapters twenty seven and twenty eight of I Will Repay. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Annie Kirkpatrick. I Will Repay by Baroness Orsi. Chapter twenty seven. The Fructidor Riots. Many accounts, more or less authentic, have been published of the events known to history as the Fructidor Riots. But this is how it all happened. At any rate, it is the version related some few days later in England to the Prince of Wales by no less than a personage than Sir Percy Blakeney, and who indeed should know better than the Scarlet Pimpernel himself. They relate in Juliet Marnie were the last of the batch of prisoners who were tried on that memorable day of Fructidor. There had been such a number of these that all the covered carts in use for the conveyance of prisoners to and from the Hall of Justice had already been dispatched with their weighty human load. Thus it was that only a rough wooden cart, hoodless and rickety, was available, and into this Desrolet and Juliet were ordered to mount. It was now close on nine o'clock in the evening. The streets of Paris, sparsely illuminated here and there with solitary oil lamps slung across from house to house on wires, presented a miserable and squalid appearance. Thin, misty rain had begun to fall, transforming the ill-paved roof into morasses of sticky mud. The Hall of Justice was surrounded by a howling and shrieking mob, who, having imbibed all the stores of brandy in the neighboring drinking bars, was now waiting outside in the dripping rain for the express purpose of venting its pent-up, spirit-sodden lust of rage against the man whom it had once worshipped, but whom now it hated. Men, women, and even children swarmed round the principal entrances of the Palais de Justice, along the bank of the river as far as the pont aux Chans, and up towards the Luxembourg Palace, now transformed into the prison, to which the condemned would no doubt be conveyed. Along the river bank, and immediately facing the Palais de Ducis, a row of gallows-shaped posts, at intervals of a hundred yards or more, held each a smoky petrol lamp, at a height of some eight feet from the ground. One of these lamps had been knocked down, and from the post itself there now hung ominously a length of rope, with a noose at the end. Around this improvised gallows a group of women sat, or rather squatted, in the mud. Their ragged shifts and kirtles, soaked through with the drizzling rain, hung dankly on their emaciated forms. Their hair, in some cases grey, and in others dark or straw-coloured, clung matted round their wet faces, on which the dirt and the damp had drawn weird and grotesque lines. The men were restless and noisy, rushing aimlessly hither and thither, from the corner of the bridge, up the Rue du Poulet, fearful lest their prey be conjured away ere their vengeance was satisfied. Oh, how they hated their former idol now! Citizen Lenoir, with his broad shoulders and powerful, grime-covered head, towered above the throng. His strident voice, with its raucous provincial accent, could be distinctly heard above the din, egging on the men, shouting to the women, stirring up hatred against the prisoners, wherever it showed signs of abating in intensity. The coal-heaver, hailing from some distant province, seemed to have set himself the grim task of provoking the infuriated populace to some terrible deed of revenge against Desrolet and Juliet. The darkness of the street, the fast-falling mist which obscured the light from the meagre oil lamps, seemed to add a certain weirdness to this moving, seething multitude. No one could see his neighbor. In the blackness of the night, the muttering or yelling figures moved about like some spectral creatures from hellish regions. The accuse of Brittany, who called those about to die, whilst the women squatting in the oozing mud, beneath that swinging piece of rope, looked like a group of ghostly witches, waiting for the hour of their Sabbath. As Desrolet emerged into the open, the light from a swinging lantern in the doorway fell upon his face. The foremost of the crowd recognized him. A howl of execration went up to the cloud-covered sky, and a hundred hands were thrust out in deadly menace against him. It seemed as if they wished to tear him to pieces. A la lantern! A la lantern! La traita! He shivered slightly, as if with a sudden blast of cold, humid air, 
but he stepped quietly into the cart, closely followed by Juliette. The strong escort of the National Guard, with Commandant Santerre and his two drummers, had much ado to keep back the mob. It was not the policy of the revolutionary government to allow excesses of summary justice in the streets. The public execution of traitors on the Place de la Révolution, the processions in the tumbrils, were thought to be wholesome examples for other would-be traitors to mark and digest. Citizen Santerre, military commandant of Paris, had ordered his men to use their bayonets ruthlessly, and, to further overawe the populace, he ordered a prolonged roll of drums, lest Desrelais took it into his head to speak to the crowd. But Desrelais had no such intention. He seemed chiefly concerned in shielding Juliette from the cold. She had been made to sit in the cart beside him, and he had taken off his coat, and was wrapping it round her against the penetrating rain. The eyewitnesses of these memorable events have declared that, at a given moment, he looked up suddenly with a curious, eager expression in his eyes, and then raised himself in the cart and seemed to be trying to penetrate the gloom round him, as if in search of a face or perhaps a voice. A la lanterne, a la lanterne, was the continual hoarse cry of the mob. Up to now, flanked in their rear by the outer walls of the Palais de Justice, the soldiers had found it a fairly easy task to keep the crowd at bay. But there came a time when the cart was bound to move out into the open, in order to convey the prisoners along, by the Rue du Palais, up to the Luxembourg prison. This task, however, had become more and more difficult every moment. The people of Paris, who for two years had been told by its tyrants that it was supreme lord of the universe, was mad with rage at seeing its desires frustrated by a few soldiers. The drums had been greeted by terrific yells, which effectually drowned their roll. The first movement of the cart was hailed by a veritable tumult. Only the women who squatted round the gallows had not moved from their position of vantage. One of these Magueras was quietly readjusting the rope, which had got out of place. But all the men and some of the women were literally besieging the cart, and threatening the soldiers, who stood between them and the object of their fury. It seemed as if nothing now could save Desrelais and Juliette from an immediate and horrible death. Amor, amor, a la lanterne la treta. Santerre himself, who had shouted himself hoarse, was at a loss what to do. He had sent one man to the nearest cavalry barracks, but reinforcements would still be some little time coming, whilst in the meanwhile his men were getting exhausted, and the mob, more and more excited, threatened to break through their line at every moment. There was not another second to be lost. Santerre was for letting the mob have its way, and he would willingly have thrown it the prey for which it clamoured, and in the year one of the revolution it was not good to disobey. At this supreme moment of perplexity he suddenly felt a respectful touch on his arm. Close behind him a soldier of the National Guard, not one of his own men, was standing at attention, and holding a small folded paper in his hand. "'Sent to you by the Minister of Justice,' whispered the soldier hurriedly. "'The citizen deputies have watched the tumult from the hall. They say you must not lose an instant.' Santerre withdrew from the front rank up against the side of the cart, where a rough stable lantern had been fixed. He took the paper from the soldier's hand, and, hastily tearing it open, he read it by the dim light of the lantern. As he read, his thick, coarse features expressed the keenest satisfaction. "'You have two more men with you?' he asked quickly. "'Yes, citizen,' replied the man, pointing towards his right, "'and the citizen minister said you would give me two more. "'You'll take the prisoners quietly across to the prison of the temple. "'You understand that?' Yes, citizen. Citizen Merlin has given me full instructions. You can have the cart drawn back a little more under the shadow of the portico, where the prisoners can be made to alight. They can then be given into my charge. You in the meantime are to stay here with your men around the empty cart as long as you can. Reinforcements have been sent for, and must soon be here. When they arrive, you are to move along with the cart, as if you were making for the Luxembourg prison. This maneuver will give us time to deliver the prisoners safely at the temple. The man spoke hurriedly and peremptorily, and Santerre was only too ready to obey. 
He felt relieved at thought of reinforcements, and glad to be rid of the responsibility of conducting such troublesome prisoners. The thick mist, which grew more and more dense, favoured the new manoeuvre, and the constant roll of drums drowned the hastily given orders. The cart was drawn back into the deepest shadow of the great portico, and whilst the mob were howling their loudest and yelling out frantic demands for the traitors, Déroulade and Juliette were summarily ordered to step out of the cart. No one saw them, for the darkness here was intense. "'Follow quickly,' whispered a raucous voice in their ears as they did so, "'or my orders are to shoot you where you stand.' But neither of them had any wish for resistance. Juliette, called a numb, was clinging to Déroulade, who had placed a protecting arm round her. Santerre had told off two of his men to join the new escort of the prisoners, and presently the small party— skirting the walls of the Palais de Justice, began to walk rapidly away from the scene of the riot. Déroulade noted that some half-dozen men seemed to be surrounding him and Juliet, but the drizzling rain blurred every outline. The blackness of the night, too, had become absolutely dense, and in the distance the cries of the populace grew more and more faint. CHAPTER Twenty Eight: THE UNEXPECTED The small party walked on in silence. It seemed to consist of a very few men of the National Guard, whom Santerre had placed under the command of the soldier who had transmitted to him the orders of the citizen deputies. Juliet and Déroulade both vaguely wondered whither they were being led, to some other prison, mayhap, away from the fury of the populace. They were conscious of a sense of satisfaction at thought of being freed from that pack of raging wild beasts. Beyond that they cared nothing, both felt already the shadow of death hovering over them. The supreme moment of their lives had come, and had found them side by side. What neither fear nor remorse, sorrow nor joy could do, that the great and mighty shadow accomplished in a trice. Juliet, looking death bravely in the face, held out her hand and sought that of the man she loved. There was not one word spoken between them, not even a murmur. They were laid with the unerring instinct of his own unselfish passion, understood all that the tiny hand wished to convey to him. In a moment everything was forgotten save the joy of this touch. Death, or the fear of death, had ceased to exist life was beautiful and in the soul of these two human creatures there was perfect peace almost perfect happiness with one grasp of the hand they had sought and found one another's soul what mattered the yelling crowd the noise and tumult of this sordid world they had found one another and hand in hand shoulder to shoulder they had gone off wandering into the land of dreams where dwelt neither doubt nor treachery where there was nothing to forgive he no longer said she does not love me would she have betrayed me else he felt the clinging, trustful touch of her hand, and knew that, with all her faults, her great sin and her lasting sorrow, her woman's heart, heaven's most priceless treasure, was indeed truly his. And she knew that he had forgiven, nay, that he had not to forgive, for love is sweet and tender, and judges not. Love is love, whole, trustful, passionate. Love is perfect understanding and perfect peace. And so they followed their escort whithsoever who chose to lead them. Their eyes wandered aimlessly over the mist-laden landscape of this portion of deserted Paris. They had turned away from the river now, and were following the Rue des Arts. Close by on the right was the dismal little hostelry, La Cruche Cassée, where Sir Percy Blakeney lived. Déroulade, as they neared the place, caught himself vaguely wondering what had become of his English friend. But it would take more than the ingenuity of the Scarlet Pimpernel to get two noted prisoners out of Paris today, even if— HALT! The word of command rang out clearly and distinctly through the rain-soaked atmosphere. Déroulade threw up his head and listened. Something strange and unaccountable in that same word of command had struck his sensitive ear. Yet the party had halted, and there was a click as of bayonets or muskets leveled ready to fire. All had happened in less than a few seconds. The next moment there was a loud cry. "'A moi, Déroulade, tis the Scarlet Pimpernel!' 
A vigorous blow from an unseen hand had knocked down and extinguished the nearest street lantern. Desrouleys felt that he and Juliette were being hastily dragged under an adjoining doorway even as the cheery voice echoed along the narrow street. Half a dozen men were struggling below in the mud, and there was a plentiful supply of honest English oaths. It looked as if the men of the National Guard had fallen upon one another, and had it not been for those same English oaths, perhaps Desrouleys and Juliette would have been slower to understand. "'Well done, Tony. Gadzooks, folks, that was a smart bit of work.' The lazy, pleasant voice was unmistakable, but God in heaven, where did it come from? Of one thing there could be no doubt. The two men dispatched by Santerre were lying disabled on the ground, whilst three other soldiers were busy pinioning them with ropes. What did it all mean? La, friend Desrouleys, had you not thought, I trust, that I would leave Mademoiselle Juliette in such a dimmed and comfortable hole? And there, close beside Desrouleys and Juliette, stood the tall figure of the Jacobin orator, the bloodthirsty citizen Lenoir. The two young people gazed and gazed, then looked again, dumbfounded, hardly daring to trust their vision, for through the grime-covered mask of the gigantic coal-heaver a pair of merry blue eyes was regarding them with lazy amusement. "'La, I do look a miserable object, I know,' said the pseudo-coal-heaver at last. "'But t'was the only way to get those murderous devils to do what I wanted. A thousand pardons, mademoiselle. T'was I brought you to such a terrible pass, but la, you are amongst friends now, who you deign to forgive me.' Juliet looked up, her great, earnest eyes, now swimming in tears sought those of the brave man who had so nobly stood by her and the man she loved. Blakeney, began Desrouleys, but Sir Percy quickly interrupted him. Hush, man, we have but a few moments. Remember you are in Paris still, and the Lord only knows how we shall all get out of this murderous city to-night. I have said that you and Mademoiselle are among friends. That is all for the moment. I had to get you together, or I should have failed. I could only succeed by subjecting you and Mademoiselle to terrible indignities. Our league could plan but one rescue, and I had to adopt the best means at my command to leave you condemned and led away together. Faith, he added with a pleasant laugh, my friend Tinville will not be pleased when he realizes that Citizen Lenoir has dragged the citizen deputies by the nose. Whilst he spoke, he had led Desrouleys and Juliet into a dark and narrow room on the ground floor of the hostelry, and presently he called Lally for Brogard, the host of this uninviting abode. Brogard! shouted Sir Percy. Where is that ass Brogard? La, man! he added as Citizen Brogard, obsequious and fussy, and with pockets stuffed with English gold, came shuffling along. Where do you hide your engaging countenance? Here, another length of rope for the gallant soldiers. Bring them in here and give them that potion down their throats as I have prescribed. Dibbent, I wish we need not have brought them along with that devil Santerre might have been suspicious else. They'll come to no harm, though, and can do us no mischief. He prattled along merrily. Innately kind and chivalrous, he wished to give Desrouleys and Juliet time to recover from their day's surprise. The transition from dull despair to buoyant hope had been so sudden, it had all happened in less than three minutes. The scuffle had been short and sudden outside. The two soldiers of Santerre had been taken completely unawares, and the three young lieutenants of the Scarlet Pimpernel had fallen on them with such vigor that they had hardly had time to utter a cry of help. Moreover, that cry would have been useless. The night was dark and wet and those citizens who felt ready for excitement were busy mobbing the Hall of Justice, a mile and a half away. One or two heads had appeared at the small windows of the squalid houses opposite, but it was too dark to see anything, and the scuffle had varied quickly to subsided. All was silent now in the Rue des Arts, and in the grimy coffee-room of the Cruche Cassée, two soldiers of the National Guard were lying, bound and gagged, whilst three of the others were gaily laughing, and wiping their rain-soaked hands and faces. In the midst of them all stood the tall, athletic figure of the bold adventurer who had planned this impudent coup. "'La, nah, we've got so far, friends, haven't we?' he said cheerily. "'And now for the immediate future. We must all be out of Paris tonight, or the guillotine for the lot of us tomorrow.' 
he spoke gaily and with that pleasant drawl of his which was so well known in the fashionable assemblies of london but there was a ring of earnestness in his voice and his lieutenants looked up at him ready to obey him in all things but aware that danger was looming threateningly ahead lord anthony dewhurst sir andrew foulkes and lord hastings dressed as soldiers of the national guard had played their part to perfection lord hastings had presented the order to santerre and the three young bucks at the word of command from their chief had fallen upon and overpowered the two men whom the commandant of paris had dispatched to look after the prisoners so far all was well but how to get out of paris every one looked at the scarlet pimpernel for guidance sir percy now turned to juliette and with the consummate grace which the elaborate etiquette of the times demanded he made her a courtly bow mademoiselle de marny he said allow me to conduct you to a room which though unworthy of your presence will nevertheless enable you to rest quietly for a few minutes whilst i give my friend Desrelade further advice and instructions in the room you will find a disguise which i pray you to don with all haste la they are filthy rags i own but your life and ours depend upon your help gallantly he kissed the tips of her fingers and opened the door of an adjoining room to enable her to pass through then he stood aside so that her final look as she went might be for Desrelade. as soon as the door had closed upon her he once more turned to the men those uniforms will not do now he said peremptorily there are bundles of abominable clothes here tony will you all don them as quickly as you can we must all look as filthy a band of sans culottes to-night as ever walked the streets of paris his lazy drawl had deserted him now he was the man of action and of thought the bold adventurer who held the lives of his friends in the hollow of his hand the four men hastily obeyed lord anthony dewhurst one of the most elegant dandies of london society had brought forth from a dank cupboard a bundle of clothes mere rags filthy but useful within ten minutes the change was accomplished and four dirty slouchy figures stood confronting their chief that's capital said sir percy merrily now for mademoiselle de marny hardly had he spoken a word when the door of the adjoining room was pushed open and a horrible apparition stood before the men a woman in filthy bodice and skirt with face covered in grime her yellow hair matted and greasy thrust under a dirty and crumpled cap a shout of rapturous delight greeted this uncanny apparition juliette like the true woman she was had found all her energy and spirits now that she felt she had an important part to play she woke from her dream to realize that noble friends had risked their lives for the man she loved and for her of herself she did not think she only remembered that her presence of mind her physical and mental strength would be needed to carry the rescue to a successful end therefore with the rags of a pair of tricotus she had also donned her personality she played her part valiantly and one look at the perfection of her disguise was sufficient to assure the leader of the band of heroes that his instructions would be carried through to the letter Desrelade, too, now looked the ragged sansculot to the life, with bare and muddy feet, frayed breeches, and shabby, black shag spencer. The four men stood waiting together with Juliet, while Sir Percy gave them his final instructions. "'We'll mix with the crowd,' he said. "'It is for us to see that that unruly crowd does what we want. Mademoiselle de Marny, a thousand congratulations. I entreat you to take hold of my friend Desrelade's hand, and not let go of it, on any pretext whatever. Law, not a difficult task, I ween.' Mean he added with his genial smile and yours Desrelade, is equally easy i enjoin you to take charge of mademoiselle juliette and on no account to leave her side until we are out of paris out of paris echoed Desrelade with a troubled sigh ay rejoined sir percy boldly out of paris with a howling mob at our heels causing the authorities to take double precautions and above all remember friends that our rallying cries the shrill call of the sea-mew thrice repeated follow it until you are outside of the gates of paris once there listen for it again 
It will lead you to freedom and safety at last. I, outside Paris, by the grace of God. The hearts of his hearers thrilled as they heard him. Who could help but follow this brave and gallant adventurer, with the magic voice and the noble bearing? And now en route, said Blakeney finally. That ass Santerre will have dispersed the pack of yelling hyenas with his cavalry by now. They'll to the temple prison to find their prey, will in their wake. A moi, my friends, and remember the seagull's cry. Desrolets drew Juliet's hand in his. We are ready, he said, and God bless the Scarlet Pimpernel. Then the five men, with Juliet in their midst, went out into the street once more. In chapters 27 and 28